Good morning. Exodus chapter 5 this morning. Again, we're in a series of messages dealing with questions that are in the Bible. And we come today to a question that is asked by an unbeliever, one that didn't believe in God. The children of Israel in our text are in slavery in Egypt because a Pharaoh had come to power that didn't know Joseph. Actually, didn't know Joseph's God. Joseph, of course, had provided for the Israelites during his lifetime, but now Joseph has died, and the new king saw the Israelites as a threat. If a foreign army came in and attacked Egypt, he feared the Israelites would side with their enemies and help defeat them. So they appointed taskmasters over the Israelites and subjected them to hard labor, and then the Israelites would cry out to God. But the more that the Egyptians worked them, the more the Israelites multiplied and the more that they spread out, and so the Egyptians feared them even more. In the midst of all that, Pharaoh issues an order to the midwives that if a Hebrew woman was having a son, they were to put him to death. But the midwives feared God, and they didn't do what Pharaoh told them. Sure enough, a Hebrew couple have a son. They see he's a beautiful child. They don't want to kill him. They hide him for three months. And then they set him in a little waterproof basket, put him in the river close to the place where Pharaoh's daughter goes to bathe. She hears the child crying, ultimately decides to take the little boy as her son, hires a Hebrew woman to nurse the child, which ends up being his own mother. But she names him Moses, and Moses grows up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter with the best of everything in Egypt. Years later, he kills an Egyptian who was beating an Israelite. And Moses flees to the land of Midian to get away from Pharaoh. There he meets a man named Jethro, and he goes to work as a shepherd for him. He marries Jethro's daughter. And you recall the story as when he was out pasturing the sheep one day near a certain mountain, that he saw a bush on fire that wasn't being consumed by the flames. He turns aside, and God speaks to him from that burning bush. He tells Moses to go back to Egypt to lead the Israelites out of slavery, and after making excuse after excuse after excuse, Moses finally consents and goes back. That is a very concise (laughs) setting of the context for our text today. So that when we come here to Exodus chapter 5, Moses and his brother Aaron are going in the first time to Pharaoh to request permission for the Israelites to celebrate a feast to God in the wilderness. So in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, afterward Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now go to chapter 6 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. 
I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So our question today comes from Pharaoh, king of Egypt, when he asked, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That's another way of asking what? Who is God? Who is God? Who is the Lord? What's your concept of God? And so I want to talk about God today. Zooming in on him, so to speak, from a general view to as specific a view as we can get in the 20 or so minutes that we have together this morning. Let's talk about a general view of God. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. You know that's how the scriptures begin. It doesn't begin by saying in eternity past there was God. That's true, but that's not how the scriptures begin. The psalmist writes in Psalm 90 verse 2, From everlasting to everlasting thou art God, the Lord. And God even says of himself through the prophet Isaiah, even from eternity, I am he, Isaiah 43, 13. I remember growing up in a little country church down on the county line, Gilead Presbyterian Church, Richland Lawrence County line. And after I got out of Myrtle Kaiser's class, Sunday school class, I moved upstairs uh, and I was in Ed McVicker's class. Wonderful man. Uh, he taught school at Buckhorn School. The old building's still standing down there. He was a mail carrier for Sumner. But I remember asking Ed more than once, when did God begin? When did God start? All right, because, and, and Ed would say, you know, well, God didn't have a beginning. He wasn't born, he just always was before there was anything else, and that boggled my mind, and it still does. My finite brain just can't conceive of something that didn't have a beginning. Can yours? I, I mean, everything about my thinking says everything that exists had to have a beginning, and God didn't. I can't wrap my mind around that. He's eternal. All right? My brain wants to try and reconcile this being existing out there somewhere who is content and fulfilled, even though there's nothing to entertain or occupy him, so to speak, but it just doesn't work. And that's where I just have to let faith take over and just accept that fact by faith. Who is God? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, he's the eternal one. He always was. He has no beginning. He will have no end. He does not exist in time. He exists independent of time and space. Those things are created for our benefit, not for his. And ultimately, when he fulfills all prophecy, he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, and there will no longer be any need for time there. And those of us that have responded to his call for salvation found in his son, Christ Jesus, we will enter into eternity with him and we too then will transcend time and space. Another concept that I just can't get my brain around. Who is God? Who is the Lord? Well, 
He's also a spirit. The Bible uses anthropomorphisms to describe him so that our brains don't blow up. An anthropomorphism is where you give God a human quality, all right? And so it uses expressions in the Bible that represent God as having hands, just as our text did today, okay? By my mighty hand, he will drive them out. God will have hands and feet and eyes and ears. But John, Jesus said in John 4, 24, that God is spirit. And he's invisible, at least to the eye of flesh. The apostle John says in John 1, 18, no man has seen God at any time. And in Colossians 1.15, the Apostle Paul calls him the invisible God. There are three main terms used to describe God in Judeo-Christian theology. He is omnipresent, which means that he knows all things, or that it, which means he's everywhere at once and there's nowhere that he's not. He's omniscient, which means he knows all things. There's nothing that he does not know. And he's omnipotent, which means that he is all-powerful. He's able to do whatever he wants to do, whatever he wills, everything that is in harmony with his perfect nature and character. He's also unchangeable, even as Jesus says of himself that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The writer of Hebrews says that. And it makes sense because change takes time and God transcends time. He simply is and he exists in all of eternity at once, and yet he can intervene in time to, to perform his perfect will and to relate personally with his creation. Who is the Lord? Who is God? Well, God is holy. God is righteous. God is good. God is truth in the most complete and perfect sense of all those terms. And obviously, that's not by any means an exhaustive study of the general knowledge of God and his essence and attributes, but it gives us a little bit of a, a detached working knowledge to proceed from. And if you can just get an inkling from these things of the immensity and the nature, the eternal nature of God, then it should make the things that we're going to talk about next that much more astounding. How can this amazing being that we know as God, how can he take any active role in our lives? How is it that God even notices us? What is man that thou art mindful of him, as the psalmist writes? And yet from the very beginning, God has been intimately involved in the affairs of men, deeply concerned with what concerns us. I mean, after all, he did create us and he cares about his creation. But let's get more specific. More specifically, God is a person who exhibits the attributes of his personality. He is self-conscious, meaning he's conscious of self. What did he say to Moses? He told Moses to tell the children of Israel, what his name was, okay? I am who I am, self-conscious. And, and through Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 5, he said, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And he's self-determined. He makes his choices according to his motives and desired purposes. 
Job 23, 13 says, he is unique and who can turn him. What his soul desires, that he does. And so the scriptures here reveal a God that has intellect and sensibility and a will. He's represented as speaking, seeing, hearing, being angry and jealous and compassionate. He's said to be creator, upholder, ruler, sustainer of all things. We know that he loves, and time doesn't permit, nor am I inclined to try and list all the passages of Scripture that talk about his love. John says God is love. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? Let me give you just a couple more. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it assures us that God is not willing that any should perish but that he is giving more time for people to repent. And that desire is the cause for the delay in him sending back Jesus to bring an end to this sin-ruined world. More time for sinners to repent. God also created man to love him and worship him because he knows that the only everlasting benefit for us is in the God-given, God-enabled worship and adoration of our creator. And it should, it should deeply grieve us every time we hear God's name taken in vain. Any time that he has spoken evil of, because the people who do that, they don't realize what they're really doing and how serious that is. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, he prayed for God's forgiveness on the ones who put him there, saying what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he wasn't just talking about the Roman soldiers with the hammers that had nailed him on that cross. He wasn't just talking about the Jewish religious leaders that had plotted and instigated his crucifixion. He wasn't just talking about Pilate, that wishy-washy procurator. He wasn't just talking about Herod, that crazy king. He was asking the Father to offer forgiveness to the entire human race, to all of us. The entire race of people that broke relationship with their creator and rebelled against him and sinned. And as he was praying that prayer, Father, forgive them, he was pouring out the blood that would satisfy justice and purchase the pardon that he sought for us. And the Father extended his forgiveness in answer to that prayer. He tore the veil in the temple from top to bottom, the veil that covered the holy of holies and the mercy seat. And and God just rushed out to meet us where we are, just like the, the father ran to embrace his prodigal son. The unimaginable, uncreated master, maker, and monarch of eternity, he wants a love relationship with us. Folks, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship. And God has stopped at nothing to get that relationship, even the sacrifice of his only begotten son. Let's get even more specific. Remember Philip? When Jesus called Philip, he was quite a guy. The day Jesus called him to, to follow, the first thing we see Philip doing is seeking out Nathaniel and saying, we found the Messiah, come and see. He was quick to believe and wanted others to believe. 
Philip was kind of bold too and, and, and pretty inquisitive. In John 14, 8, he makes a request of Jesus that I don't remember reading anywhere in the Bible since the time that Moses kind of asked the same sort of thing. But Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. What's he really saying? Jesus, show us, show us God. And we'll be satisfied. And the response that he got is very significant for all of us to, to comprehend and cling to as we relate to God. Because Jesus told Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. Now we've already touched on the fact today that God does not have a body, that he is spirit and invisible and all things are contained in him. So Jesus was not saying that God the Father looks like the person that was standing right in front of the disciples at that very moment. What did Jesus mean? Well, first of all, he was establishing in their minds that he himself was God. Jesus is God. Who is the Lord? Well, Jesus is in the flesh. He's God in the flesh, God incarnate. It was something that they had already confessed openly, but this question from Philip demonstrated that they hadn't captured the full impact of that fact. So do you want to see the Father? You want to see God? Look at Jesus. Not the body, but look at who he is. Witness his compassion as he calls the man with the withered hand to the front of the synagogue. Or as he extends forgiveness and loving acceptance to a woman and saves her from being stoned. See his wisdom as he astounds the highly educated religious leaders and, and just shuts their mouths with his responses. Take a look at his refusal to, to publicly announce his true identity before his proper time. Observe his powers, demons shrink back in his presence. Blind men grow new eyes, dead people come back to life, and at the sound of his voice, the elements themselves worship and obey him. Watch in awe as a multitude of men fall back on the ground when he tells them his real name. And as a leper instantly becomes pink and clean at a mere touch, or a tortured woman when she reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment, is healed of a long-term hemorrhage. Look at a fisherman's net that's filled to the breaking point at his command. You want to see the Father? Look at the Son. Hear him rebuke the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, his words of anger when his holy place of prayer is defiled. See the tears stream down his face when he considers the suffering of the unrighteous and the unbelievers, the suffering that's inevitable if they don't change their heart. Hear the urgency in his voice when he cries out, come all who are thirsty and I'll give you living waters without cost. Come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You see, Jesus was the specific revelation of the Father to us. So when you pray, do you pray to that God? Or do you pray to a God that's reluctant to answer, who, who wants you to jump through hoops 
before he'll give you the time of day? Do you pray to a God who only hears sometimes? Do, do you pray to a God that expects you to get yourself out of your own fixes? Or do you pray to the God of whom Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature? Do you pray to the God who is willing to be nailed to a cross for you and even prayed for you while he hung on the tree? Do you think the Father in heaven literally felt the pain of the nails? I would think he did. Pray to that God. You want to know who God is? Who is the Lord? How you should approach him? Whether or not he cares about you and will be there when you need him? Whether he has the power to order your steps properly and lead you in the everlasting way? Then look at Jesus. John 12 verses 44 and 45 says, Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. In the person of his son, Jesus Christ, God the Father forever erased the need to wonder what he's like, where he is, what he expects, what he offers, and whether he cares for you and me. So now let's get downright personal. Look at Jesus, people. Look at Jesus and see the Father. He's real. He's a person with feelings. He wants you to know his ways. He wants you to know him. He wants you to feel so comfortable around him that at any point during the day as you go about your business or your recreation or your time of rest, you just might spontaneously speak of him and speak to him of whatever's on your mind or what inspires you or what concerns you just because you are as aware of his presence as if he were standing visibly right beside you. He wants you to love him more than anyone or anything. He wants you to love him so much that at any moment he can say, do this for me and you will rush to do his will because it is your delight to serve the one that you love. Don't be afraid of him. Love him. Know his ways. Be amazed. What did Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice. Well, he's more than just a one-word answer. He is the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, creator and sustainer of all that is. He is the God that loves you so much that he sent his son to save you from your sins. He is God from everlasting to everlasting. He is the only God Apart from him, there is no other God, and he is so much more than words can tell. He is the one who will give you eternal life if you will accept his son as your Lord and Savior. Which, by the way, that's the reason why you should obey his voice. Eternal life is in his son. Pharaoh said, I do not know the Lord. Do you?
I pray that you do. And if you don't, I pray that you will come to know him. That's the message. Who is the Lord? So much more than one sermon can tell. (laughs) Amen? So much more. But if you have a decision you'd like to make for the Lord today, if you have a public decision you'd like to make, you can meet me right down front as we stand and sing. If you have...